Welcome to the Audiation in the Wild podcast with your hosts, Bo Talifer and Eric Rasmussen. Season 3, Episode 4, Special Guest, Gregory Chase. Well, good morning, Gregory Chase. It's good to see you again. Hey, thank you. It's great to be here. Bo, you ran into Greg along the way. Yeah, that's right. Before. Greg was hosting some MLT uh, Canada coffee chats, and I was, at that point, very hungry to just talk to anyone about this stuff. <laughs> even yeah, <Greg>. even me. No, you've got a reputation as being the Canadian MLT guy. Oh, <laughs> you're kind. At least as far as oh. I can tell. <laughs> well, you're pretty broad. Tell us what you're doing now, and you know. Uh, yeah, I guess I mean the majority is is teaching private lessons. Um, piano is what I do. I do have some group lessons that I have, um, and overlaps lessons and and uh, just sibling lessons that I have. So most of it is incorporating MLT, and then I'm doing some early childhood. Um, programs. Um, so at first, yeah, yeah, at first year's learning, um, we started at another, uh, a colleague and I, we started this in May, where she has three classes and I take the other three classes. So we get through 100 kids in 90 minutes. So some of, wow. so there are 30 minutes each. Um, they range anywhere from infants up to six years of age, and each class is 30 minutes. Some of them have 20 kids in them. Um, um, the educators are there with us, which really helps and makes a difference. So we're doing those one-on-one. -on -one, and then at the local conservatory here, we were teaching classes um, last year and then again in this fall. And where we're teaching those together, which is great. And so those are, the parents are involved in those. Um, they're just, again, early childhood, early childhood music programs. And yeah. So it's great to be able to do that. And those we run in 10 weeks, whereas first year's learning, they're all year. So it's great. We'll be able to get a lot accomplished, I feel, yeah, over the year. Nice. And all the classes relatively the same age, or are they all mixed? Well, with at the conservatory, we, in the fall, sorry, in the spring and winter, they ended up being mixed because there wasn't enough to separate them. Um, right now, the majority of the kids are around a year, a year and a half to two years that we're doing at the conservatory. Then at the first year's learning, yeah, they are grouped by age. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. that works really well. And I think it really gives you, going from having complete mixed groups to having very specific ages, then you can really tailor the activities, I find, to and really pinpoint things so much better um, than if it's just a general mixed age group where you're trying to hit everyone a little bit. Yeah. 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 No. No, that's, how, that's all I've ever done is by mm -hmm. age uh not not can't say ever there's a few times and they're really good to have the kids model the behaviors for the younger kids and, that, and there's certain advantages mm -hmm. that i i so prefer teaching when you've got a small range a smallish range mm 
The behaviors are never small. <laughs> the range of behaviors, but the age range is, is yeah. important to me. Yeah, and I would um, I would say one of the things that I realize, and I remember hearing Gordon saying this uh, to Dr. Ranfola. She had videoed him um, towards later in his life, and she had an interview with him. And he said, you know, we, we get these kids that come here, and then we beat the rhythm of all musicality right out of them, you know, by doing these things. And I, that's one of the things that I really... <laughs> Um, find with teaching these early childhood music programs is how so often we're the ones that are actually holding the children back. Totally. Totally. Oh. I don't know how to address that other than just smatter. I, I, I use this analogy with the parents, like how many smorgasbords from different cultures can I give them? Mm. And then, you know, hope that they go home and sing and dance and play with them using all this variety of contexts, not just tonality and meter, but style and culture and, of course, harmonic. Mm -hmm. So, speaking of harmonic, you were in my first harmonic learning sequence yeah. class. That was yeah, that was. <laughs> no, it was great. Yeah. How's that Yeah, going? good. You know, and, and I realize, I mean... <sighs> Two things, I think, two things that I really drew from taking that course with you, and I, I think we need to incorporate more into, at least, okay, I need to incorporate it more into my own teaching um, and with the method that I'm using. And that is that really when we're singing, we should be applying harmony underneath. Um, yeah, when the students are are learning the songs, um, a lot of times we'll just we'll do it separately without the harmony. But I think we're missing something in that process. That they they still they really need to be hearing that harmony going underneath of all our songs that we learn to sing, um, and that we're learning to play, and that it's not just the melody. Um, another thing that I that I feel that we need to or I need to incorporate more is words in our songs. Um, it's easy to sing it on a neutral syllable, but I think there is so much more that can be accomplished by incorporating words. Just on a couple of previous episodes, you guys were talking about style and phrasing and um, different things like that. Words will help with that. Words will help with the sense of phrasing. Words will help with the sense of form um, and some of those those attributes. And and I do think that those them themselves are aptitudes as well. Um, phrasing, style, you know, the form. I think those are part of music aptitude. I mean, we know that there's 32 of them. Or and I saw that list once, and I thought I will always remember where this list was. And I and I <laughs> oh, and I can't find. That. I've been oh. saying 20-something, but I don't remember. I just remember Doc talking about it yeah. in class. And I saw the, a list of these, and I thought, this is perfect. This is what I wanted. You know, what are these aptitudes? And I don't know if I can ever find that again. But, um, mm. yeah. And so I think that's those are things that I really took away from your course that I need to be incorporating more in my own teaching. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can get the other side of the equation where you want to have kids sing melodies, you know, uh, by themselves, 
So they're not leaning, uh, you know, to imitate on, by leaning on the harmony to imitate the melody. Um, you know, I get that, but I think there's too much to lose to not do, uh, you know, what I suggest. And then also, um, there's not enough to gain to only do it the other way. So it's, it's a both yeah. and, but I prefer yeah. heavy balance more on the harmony, obviously, because you got to acculturate in harmony. You can't just, it doesn't come out of the air and it doesn't come out of tonal patterns. At least there, it's a different, it's a different audiational skill mm -hmm. to get tonal patterns into rhythm than, or into harmony, than to listen to harmony and understand harmony without the tonal patterns, yeah. you know, which, you, which I, you know, just found you can do way early in life. So, you know, two years old. Crazy. And I think Greg's point about Eric, you know, the, your use of words and diction in um, your curriculum, I've just found from a practical level, especially when I'm working with young kids, when you teach them a song with words, they come back next week having sang the song to themselves a hundred times sometimes. And I don't see that the same when there's not words with the song. And so even just from a purely pragmatic, practical level, having the kids engage more with the song, but yeah, words are a great idea. And I think it, highlighting what Eric said is so important. We're, pretty much everything we advocate, have advocated on this podcast, we're not necessarily saying like anything that's been traditionally taught in MLT um, should be jettisoned. Right. But we're just, we're just saying maybe you can add some other things in with that too. And, you know, this variety of like with words, without words, with harmony, without harmony, it's all good. Do it all. There's more, there's more learning available when you... Um, play around with things like that and it tends to make it you know a lot of fun to, to do that stuff yeah it gives kids agency to come back and say i want the da da song yeah. or whatever they, you know the dinosaur da da the da do song yeah. yeah and eric you have some crazy <laughs> no. chants too like your your whatever you want to call them odd meter chants bbn's chants uh and i i couldn't see people getting into those as much without some of the words <laughs> Oh no, no way. Well, because uh, it's it, it's a catch, right? They want to have that catch. They want that moment of um, anticipating, you know, the very specific thing that they're waiting for, that one word that they're after or that they're waiting for, the whole that the whole chant or that the whole song can be hinged upon, you know. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I had a three month old, not even three, like ten weeks. Right, it was, and it was a private lesson. Nobody else is. Oh, I had no. There was another newborn, but she was sleeping when I got there, and that was that was it. I had a private lesson, <laughs> and my world kind of exploded, you know, because I I've had four or five months old the last few years, but not somebody that young. They're so different in those two months, mm -hmm. and. uh Oh my God, it's like, I didn't know what to do, right? So I just started drumming on stuff and doing little stuff. You know, I, I did know what to do, but I mean, it was just like, I, I don't need a plan. I just, <laughs> just go for it and whatever. But yeah, that, that was an experience of mine this week that makes me just go, yeah, I love it. You know, love what we do. Um. Um, there might be people out there, Greg, that, how did you get into MLT? They might not know your back, 
story. Yeah, <laughs> um, it, it actually came Tough through Jana Olson. I mean, we're we're entrenched in our examination systems up here, uh, good or bad. Um, and I don't know if we want to touch on that because I've struggled. I would like to. Um, so she actually came and she was examining one of my students. And so she, it was like an elevator conversation. She was, she just got off the, the plane. She, um, booked a, a rental car. She came to my place, examined my student. She was off to another center to examine later on in the day so so there wasn't really time to chit chat but at the bottom of my stairs because my studio was upstairs um at the bottom of the stairs she had just kind of mentioned very briefly a little bit about music learning theory how it's based on how we learn and how the brain processes music and so whatever her elevator speech was and it was probably only a minute if that she caught me because <laughs> that was just something that I was always interested in. Previously, we just had um, a son. And so even before he was born, I started to read about the male brain and, and taking that process. And I thought, okay, so now that I know this, how can I apply this? If this is how the male brain learns, how can I apply it to music? And so that was really the key that I was kind of missing. And so when... Um, Jana had kind of mentioned it, and she had mentioned her friend Marilyn Lowe, so I was repeating the name over and over, Music Moves for Piano, over and over in my brain as she was talking, so I wouldn't forget it. She left the door, I ran upstairs and started Googling, and uh, as they say, the rest of that is history. So that's really, it was just a one-minute conversation, um, and it came at the right time, you know, and as they say, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. And I was I was very much ready for something different. I knew there had to be a better and a different approach to music than what I had been doing for decades of teaching. So yeah, yeah. My uh, I'm curious to know, like before this conversation, before you reading about Gordon and MLT, had you had this kind of audiation insight that there's a difference between people, you know, pushing keys down on a piano and, and the difference really between someone audiating what they're playing. Had you had subtle inclinations of that in your history or was this? No, I, so? I don't think so because I just, I just would have attributed as playing by ear. And mm -hmm. I mean, I guess, no, that's not true because I do have a friend and it's an old time fiddler group. And so I remember calling them musicians. I didn't feel that I was a musician, but I felt that they were. They didn't read, but they knew what chords came when. And and so the colleague, the friend of mine, she was very much bound to notation, you know, as many of us, you know, learned. And so they would say, yeah, but it's, it's just a G chord. It's a five chord, you know, and she goes, yeah, but what is that type of thing? And um, and I thought, you know what, those are true, true musicians. Even my grandfather, he had a dance hall and um, again, played banjo, guitar, different things. And I don't know whether he really read music. I know that he composed a song and he notated it so there would have been some of that but I think it was more done through audiation and I th even this morning I was thinking I thought there's loads of people out there who are audiating that don't realize that they're audiating or they may not have the vocabulary to apply yeah. to what they are audiating yeah, mm -hmm. so, yeah. totally agree yeah, no, the reason I was curious is I find often people that are 
very receptive to MLT and really run wild with it once they start reading about it and learning about it, have had some kind of intuitions or experiences like you're describing, meeting musicians who can play by ear and just mm-hmm. seem to, I call it the free train effect when you're around an audiator that can just, they don't need notation, you know, things are just very intuitive to them and they're mm-hmm. just, it feels like you're around just like a monster musician when you're around people like that. And you've, oh, you're nodding, so you've had that experience. <laughs> but it's like when you're around someone like that and you can't do it as well as they yeah. can, um, even, I mean, I, I'm, I've always been a good audiator as a student, but I've been around jazz musicians that have just been like, whoa, they're doing something that I'm not doing. And you still feel it when someone is audiating at that level. And it, uh, it just seems effortless for them. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, they're just playing around with you. They're just joking with you. And for the life of you, you know, if you had a gun pointed to your head, you couldn't do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe yet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I remember taking lessons and the teacher's back was turned towards me. And I, I know I've shared this before with others, you know, and she said, um, Greg, are you reading the notes? Or are you playing by ear? And I thought, well, that's a really stupid question. I'm using my fingers. I mean, who would ever play with their the <laughs> piano with their ear? It made no sense. But I knew that by the way that she worded the question, there is really only one right answer. And that was, oh, no, I'm reading the notes. And so then the next week, <laughs> I said to my mom, when I left for my lesson, I said, you know what she asked me last week? She asked me if I was playing the piano with my ear like I, why would I be doing that I mean you can't hit all the notes properly with your ear I mean and I was five I think at the time uh, when, when that came up so I mean you take everything very literal and then mom said no 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 what she meant was and so then my mom explained it to me but my dad played by ear and so then that's why um, that's that's probably and she may have known that and that's why she was asking so, I mean, I knew mm-hmm. by that that, no, you aren't supposed to play by ear. So I really tried to squelch that part. And I bet you that's exactly what I was doing, is that I was playing by ear. And I was then, after that point, suppressing, suppressing, suppressing that audiation. Mm-hmm. That well, I'm curious. So so your, your piano um, studies at this point, your teacher was encouraging you to... Uh, decode essentially mm-hmm. an MLT language and not play by ear. But then when you played pieces for exams that had to be memorized, were there, was there, what was going on at that point? Do you think from your, I mean, I know, I know you're probably looking back on this and it, the memory might not be perfectly accurate, but was there some translation of it being played by, uh, by memory or by ear or were you, some piano players actually visualize notation when they play from memory, if they're very decoding heavy. I don't know what your experience with that was. Yeah, like I didn't really do exams until um, after high school. <laughs> yeah. And okay. so, I mean, there was a time period where, where I took lessons and then there were years where I didn't take lessons because I didn't have a teacher. We had moved. We didn't take, I didn't have a teacher. Um, one of my, I was playing for a youth group and uh, the, the director, I was accompanying them and the director said, Greg, you need to count. And I said, I need to what? And she said, you need to count. You need to have the right rhythm. I had no clue what she was talking about. None at all. You know, what do you mean count? Uh, why would you do that in music? So, I mean, I think my ear really was the one that was leading me and guiding me. And I just didn't realize that. And uh, so exams really didn't happen for me until after high school, um, where I okay. went to college and studied. And so even though when I was memorizing, it, was, it would be completely tactile, completely tactile. Yeah. 
Um, and it wasn't until I went to university that I then learned how to memorize. Yeah. And, and that's one of my claims to fame is that I think I'm one of the world's worst memorizers. I really had to learn. Worst memorizer. Yeah. I really had to learn <laughs> yeah. how to memorize. I had no idea how to go about it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. yeah especially with piano, you know, I find, uh, I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but I, I get students who are in like in Canada, North America for the Royal Conservatory. They're working on like grade five or six pieces and I'll bring them back down to like two or three and actually make sure they're audiating like the bass lines they're playing or the, the separate people are playing Bach tunes, but the left hand's not audiated at all. It's, it's just like they're audiating the right hand and the left hand is entirely a tactile association. Maybe there's some rhythm audiation, rhythmic audiation of the patterns they're playing. But if I said, can you just sing anything from the, from the left hand that you played? And it's entirely, you know, its own voice. It's not even, it's not even chords. It's just it's an actual melody. And there's just like a blank stare at my... <laughs> and so when I think of memorization, that's like part of it, in my mind, you know, being able to, to not only memorize the, uh, the, the, the physical and tactile and mechanical movements of the hands, but actually memorize the melodies, for, you know, through audition, be able to, to, to call those and bring those to mind, whether it's through singing or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I'm sure you found this too, and we could talk about this, but I, I find the, the way the exam pressure is in Canada, for piano specifically, I don't feel the same pressure with my classical guitar students. People are trying to push into higher grades than they're authentically able to audiate, and people lose the chance to work on those fundamental skills. Because if you don't learn to audiate bass lines in grade one pieces, I mean, good luck mm-hmm. when you're working on the grade nine pieces. Like, you're... That's gonna be a rough ride, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I don't know what your you know experience with that is. I'm getting some nods here, so I'm curious. <laughs> I always nod. <laughs> I know I'm just like a bobblehead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, this is what we do, and we have MLT. We have conversations with MLT teachers. Everyone's just nodding. We never get the chance to do. This. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean. I mean, my teaching has changed completely. I mean, it's really been turned on its head. And yeah, I mean, the the decoding, the whole decoding process of of what we have, what I did for years with my students. I mean, so yeah, they're, they're playing these exams at a very high level. I think it's more about achievement than it is about learning music. So you've got, you know, your classical music and it's, it's, you've got it at a very high, high level. And meanwhile, everything on the sides is at a low level. You really don't have those skills or the understanding of the different things. Um, And so I think that's really one of the pitfalls of the exams, because in order to get your 80s and, and that, you know, that level of achievement, I mean, you have to spend the majority, the most of your lessons on those pieces. And I have parents who come and I want Johnny to do an exam. Why? Why do you want Johnny to do an exam? Here are some of the pitfalls. There's a lot more to music than just, you know, decoding five pieces in a grade level, which some of them, that's all that they were capable of doing um, and walking away and really not having any understanding of the music that they're playing. Yeah. Now, I realize part of that is to the teaching as well. I mean... But there's just so much more to music that we miss because of trying to get that first class honors, you know, achievement in our exams. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, because well, I mean, I don't know if you found this, but I've, I found with my, um, I, I do Royal Conservatory exams with, with my piano students sometimes and my guitar students sometimes, but it can seemingly take them a while to get to the point where they're even ready to, to start the prep grade or the grade one, whether it's guitar or piano. Once they have a solid, you know, pa- uh, set of tonalities, they can audiate rhythm patterns, um, tonal patterns. They can just like bulldoze through all kinds of grade levels after that. But people get impatient because to get them to the musicality level, even the stuff in the preparatory grade for guitar is insanely complicated. <laughs> There's things that I consider to be wildly inappropriate for that level. But once they can, once they're decent audiators, there's stuff like maybe not whole pieces, but there's there's large parts of pieces in like the grade eight repertoire that people could learn to play. So there's a weird disconnect in the exam system between the difficulty of something to audiate and where it's placed in their sequence because they're making the sequence with a different lens from what I see. You know, they have different parameters for what should be where. But people get very impatient about this, especially parents I've found when they want their kids to do exams and it can be you know it can be a bit of a balancing act because i'm i'm actually open to doing the exam process uh, i think there's a lot of good that can come out of it the structure but it, it can be hard to navigate you know when you feel like you're serving two masters at once yeah and i think exams exams are fine once the students have those skills but i i find that with the way that the exam systems are right now those the skills that they need and how we do with music learning theory, they're, they're quite far apart. And so when students are ready to do exams, it's not they're going to do a grade one exam. They'll be able to do a much um, higher level of exam and, and be able mm-hmm. to audiate throughout the whole exam, which is what I want them to do and not to just be able to decode and to jump through hoops like intervals. Uh, identifying intervals is just, uh, I have no use for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, can you imagine if, if they just, right. can, like, can you imagine if they got rid of identifying intervals oh. and that, that was just turned into tonal pattern vocabulary? Yes. Like the benefit yep. that would, like at this grade, you should know these tonal patterns by memory, sing them for me, yep. let's go, and just do away with intervals. Yeah. Like that would be, it would be so valuable. But unfortunately, you know, there's, there's different pedagogical lenses that people are taking when they design these curriculums. Yeah. And, and there can be a lot of, uh, it can, I, I think it's hard for MLT teachers because once you've kind of seen the light and, and tasted the, the, you know, the fruit of this type mm-hmm. of teaching, it seems almost just cruel and insane to not <laughs> do some of these things, especially when, how long does an LSA take to deliver? Yeah. That's just it. Yeah. 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 Like I just, I don't know of any songs that are only two notes long. <laughs> if anybody yeah. knows or, or knows of what, let me know. <laughs> Someone out there is like challenge accepted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. But yeah, I agree with what you said. Where it takes it all of a sudden, it can seem like someone's ready to do. You know, it's not like you have to jump in with the preparatory and then the grade one. People can seemingly once they have the skills, they're just kind of ready to, to dive in mm-hmm. to, to a decent grade level. Yeah, and even just the pieces themselves. Like I find that little um, C minor, uh, C major prelude that's in the grade RCM grade five, that's a whole lot easier to audiate 
than the Minuet in G by Petzold that's in the grade three level. I mean, they're used to getting secondary dominance, you're getting twos, you're getting all these other chords, but students may not even be ready for at that level. And so then audiation-wise, that is what makes it a challenge, um, is that when you're, when you're grading pieces, um, you're really doing it at a totally different level when you're, when you're doing it through audiation rather than through um, the harmonic functions that some of these books or, or the technical ability yeah. it takes to pull the piece off. And I, I find the same thing. There, there are pieces, I know the guitar repertoire really well. There are pieces in the grade 10 guitar repertoire that are more easy, that are easier to audiate than pieces in like the grade two book. And it's just like, this makes absolutely no sense. And um, I get that, you know, these, these we're, we're not trying to pick on the Royal Conservatory no. by any means. I'm, I'm, I'm decently satisfied with the, the program, but yeah, the problem is when when you're taking an MLT lens to doing exam prep, you really have to be critical about like what is useful in terms of the sequence of difficulty of audiation of these pieces. And you know, you can have a you can have a student in grade two that's a really good audiator. You give them something more difficult, but you kind of need to develop a sense when you're working with these books and these these lists of uh, pieces in your repertoire where the audiation difficulty is, whether it's rhythmically or some pieces in the prep book have um pickups mm-hmm. right and in my in my mind the preparatory grade should be almost like entirely microbeats and macrobeats i think that that should just be like that maybe even just microbeats i don't know but it should be easy but the, and uh, i guess it's fine that there's different range of difficulty levels but audiation wise like whether it's rhythmically or harmonically however you look at it it's just it's just craziness some of the stuff that's going on i think the easier levels should be easier even more easy than they are because there's such a high barrier for people to go from like not playing at all to get in the exam prep. And then, yeah, I would like, that's what I would like to see personally is just the, the lower grades be even easier, move some of that difficulty more into the middle grades and the upper grades would kind of just stay where they are presumably. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, it's hard to straddle all of that. While yeah. I bet the same problems apply globally. I remember my, you know, trumpet auditions for state, band and, and and whatnot you know that that i don't know how how it made sense to them I, I i haven't looked at it from an mlt lens but just thinking back it's like those were one-time pieces and then now they're gone i don't yeah you know i memorized them i did what i needed to do you know i scored whatever points i scored i got into whatever bands i got into and who knows you know why mm-hmm. <laughs> you know just sheer luck or um you know uh an underlying good ear i had a really good early childhood in my you know singing in choir at four years old mm-hmm. at church and, and stuff like that i think it just you know gave you a foundation for stuff but i i bet that if you look at other programs can the conservatory programs uh here uh i i don't understand i i was asked to adjudicate a harp festival a long time ago uh and the the there was some of this it was just mind-blowingly musical and i just this is beautiful and they're putting heart and soul and i'm sitting next to a faculty member from another organization another college and boy, did she rant and rave about something that was just horrendous to me. 
Interesting. And we're talking, you know, with each other about our scores and who we're going to give uh, money to because we had, you know, some grant money, like a, a couple hundred dollars and fifty dollars. You're not a lot, but oh my goodness! Just because this one older child, I think it was high school, was the highest level, could play the most difficult piece, and literally didn't play it at all. Just banged the notes out of her fingers or plucked, you know, and I just, I remember just shaking my head, leaving that room going, that's a world-class harp teacher insisting to me that that was musical when it was anything but, mm. like deservingly musical of of the higher, you know, maybe it was somebody she knew and she was trying to play her chips, but but held, held backwards. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and those, I think in, in normal teaching environments, those skills are just often chalked up. It's like a musicality thing. It's like a separate set of skills. Like the real skill is like just to play the piece, decode, do the technical stuff. And then all that other musicality stuff will just kind of pick up along the way somehow, whether by natural talent or osmosis. And um, That's one of the reasons I love Paul yeah. Harris is that, you know, his claim is that those things can be worked on in, in small chunks in each lesson, you know, little little exercises where you phrase something different or, or whatever. Eric, you said something else that reminded me of, um, I w- I'm curious to hear, like, Greg, your experience growing up, learning to play piano, were you encouraged to listen to the pieces that you were learning or was that actively discouraged or? No, I don't. I mean, my teacher probably played them through. And then mm-hmm. I learned them. That would be yeah. about it. Yeah. But um, so, you know, it's not like we listen to recordings or anything like sure. that. Yeah. Um, I know one one thing that one of my teachers did is at the end of every lesson, we sang. We sang a song. And it would be something that was on the, you know, the pop charts at the time. Um, and I always enjoyed That's doing cool. that. I always enjoyed sure. the singing aspect of it. And we would always end our lessons that way. And looking back now, I realized how important that was. You know, at the time, you just do it because it's fun, you know, and you enjoy it. But there's <laughs> just so much more that she was teaching us without us even realizing it. Yeah, as we were doing that. But no, I didn't. I didn't listen much. I mean, in university, you do only to kind of get an idea. Then after you've learned it, yeah, then then you're going to listen to it, to the different interpretations. But your purpose of listening is completely different because by that point, you already know the piece. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that's uh, I'm a real big fan of people listening to multiple versions of a piece to hear the different interpretations. And I've heard, you know, there's a there's a lot of university teachers who they'll take an extreme view like don't listen to any recordings because your your interpretation is going to be uh, almost tainted by the recordings that you hear and then other ones will say things like if you are going to listen to recordings listen to many so you can hear different so you can kind of choose and i i like i generally obviously don't <laughs> agree with the first philosophy but i like the idea of like let's listen to multiple interpretations and let's hear how this can be phrased differently and i um i often don't hear young students doing that when studying because i mean obviously you know greg there's such a 
there's such importance placed off of learning to decode music that anything that's going to help people play by here is discouraged. But unfortunately, people aren't getting the experience of listening to many versions of a piece being phrased. And how are you going to discriminate against different styles of phrasing if you're not given the opportunity to listen to them? And, you know, I'm thinking of this flute teacher I used to um, work for and work with. She owned this music school that I worked with, and she taught by decoding. So, you know, but her students were amazingly musical. And why was this the case? She played everything right before they played it. Always gave her students an oral example. So if they were going to play eight bars of a piece, four bars of a piece, she played it masterfully, masterfully, beautifully right before they decoded it. And so I always saw that as like an interesting, you know, it's just an interesting situation from an MLT lens because she was decoding. But there's no doubt her students are musical, masterful phrasers, masterful players, in- instrumentalists. And I'm convinced her students were really audiating. But she always gave them an oral example, literally the second before they decoded. But as we see on piano, what's more common is blind decoding. Not even So we're decoding, which we're not even like that crazy about to begin with. But then a step worse than decoding is like this blind decoding where you don't even get to hear context or meter or a resting tone, and you're just trying to like play the notes. And I, I think that that is in like a different galaxy of unusefulness than um, what this other teacher was doing, where everything was played before the student was asked to, you know, in, um, work with the notation, even at the decoding level. And I think piano just has like the worst rap for this uh, out of all the instruments. <laughs> Like, I don't know what it is. What do you think? Like, why is this? The the decoding and the piano thing is so intimately linked in a way that I don't see that with any other instrument to that degree. Like, (laughs) you see, yeah. And then you see, and that's hard for me to answer because that's just the way that I know that it was like, (laughs) I grew, grew up in that, right? The same indifferences. I don't know the differences. I just know the same. This is what we do in piano. That's the way it's been for however long and what we do. And I mean, just to just to go back to what you were saying, like I know of of a teacher who who will play the pieces for the students, but her students sound like her playing the pieces. Sure. So there's the flip side of that. I mean, and I know in in um music learning theory we do we do want a model. Right. I mean, modeling is huge um, for doing that. So where so here's a question for you guys. Where does the modeling stop where the students are not imitating what we're doing, but are now starting to bring their own interpretation and Mm. them as a person bringing that to the music? So I, I see this, This I, I think this is super important, and I see this is a type of inference activity applied to phrasing, essentially. And I think the way that you build that with students is you, you start very simply just having them phrase it in different ways. And, and they have to model you, because at first they don't have the, they won't necessarily have the musical intuition to just naturally phrase something different. So you model something all staccato, slow, all staccato, fast. Have, you know, some notes staccato, slow, some notes staccato, some notes legato. And just different, you know, different types of uh, dynamic schemes and all this kind of stuff. And you have them imitate that enough. And it seems like at a certain point, their brain just hits critical mass where they just intuitively phrase things in different ways. And that, that's I, the reason I like viewing it like that is it lines up with the skill learning sequence. It lines up with going from discrimination to inference learning. And it actually paints a practical way 
to do this with people rather than just chalking it up to like raw musical like mysterious talent it's, it's a way where you can you can go with a with a six-year-old from you know day one into someone who can actually phrase things properly and it just starts with little discrimination exercises but obviously you know that that being said that's one way of of looking at this whole thing i'm not saying like that's gospel but i it's for me even a very workable way of looking at this. And I love it. And, and I think students love the, the aspect of playing an instrument where you're just technically trying to control the instrument is, is so often um, bludgeoned into people in the sense that it demotivates them from playing. But if you just take a simple piece or a simple melody, and then the practice is not so much this like technical slodging through like mastering the instrument. It's more of learning how to phrase things and control the sound. That just seems inherently more enjoyable to, to do than, than to kind of always like if the only aspect of playing piano, for example, is working on harder technical things, unless that's your bag. You know, some people, that's their bag. Like they, they want to do that. It's just for me, it's such a it's such a weird way of approaching music in the sense of this one dimensional, um, like physical skill. But, you know, Eric, I'm, I'm interested to hear what Eric uh, thinks because he's a, he's a brass player and, and I've, I've had better experiences with wind players and brass players and stuff where there's so much of what they talk about is controlling the sound. You know, that is like the, um, the beauty of those instruments is the way the sound can be carved out in a way you can't get on the piano quite the same, or you can't get on the guitar the same so i mean i don't know what do you think eric about teaching people the phrase yeah i got a, a a few things in there uh one right off the bat and, and the strongest thing is how many times do you see piano students get off the bench and move move their bodies mm-hmm. move to that phrase now move to that phrase this way and give them movement vocabulary in you know all the laban elements and combinations of elements so that they can feel the stretch and the snap of a phrase or the light bubble right and the landing of something that's just uh serene uh that want you want to right and that that imagination or audiation you know of movement is you know somehow pushed out through your digits on the piano. Uh, so, you know, and I always tell parents, you know, look, look at all these conservatory students practicing in the halls. Tell me if any of them are moving other than their bow. Are they, like, t- tell me they're doing what I'm doing with your children in class. Uh, I just don't see it. Uh, with regard to my specific, you know, being a trumpet player, uh, I've got three uh, teachers in my four years in my undergraduate school. One left to go to another college. Another came in, and they wasn't. He was great, but they weren't going to hire. They were going to hire him back at the same level as the first year, and they like, no, I'm not handling. So they left. And then I got another guy, and this guy wanted to change everything I had been doing. And I had had really good instruction in high school. Uh, from a trombone player who turned down uh, Glenn Miller <laughs> to play studio stuff in in New York. And he would do crossword puzzles and all this stuff during my lesson. But every time I did something wrong, he would sing that measure back to me. <laughs> he was just insane. Uh, and uh, 
but I, you know, I finally fought back with this third trumpet teacher, an undergraduate, and I, you know, I said, I, you know, I only have another few months with you. Why am I going to change everything when what I'm doing works? Well, how do you know it works if you don't try it? <laughs> what I'm telling you. And I'm like, well, who do you really like to listen to? And I said, Miles Davis. And he said, Wah. he said he made some awful noise because because all, all the squeaks and, you know, things that Miles would do with his trumpet. And he put Miles Davis down and I knew better. So I, the validity of that guy just got cut right off. So, <laughs> it's same as my piano teacher in high school. As soon as I found out she liked Barry Manilow, I dropped her after one more lesson. <laughs> I, you know, I, what, what was, what was, you know, what was in me that I would do that? Like, there's a piece of integrity missing that just, I don't understand. There's something I can learn from you, but I, you know, I, I was immature for sure, but, but at some level, I was like, I'm standing up for myself and this, you don't like Miles Davis? Well, to hell with you, buddy. I'm still going to work hard, you know, do my recital and I'll, you know, I'll go through and I'll, you know, I got what a minus or A's in my lessons along the way. But boy, did we bat butt heads for a couple of weeks. He was really angry with me. He was a brand new professor. So, and I was a senior. So I was, Sorry, was, Eric, there. was he a, was he like a, a jazz <laughs> trumpet player or? A... Yeah. Yeah. Oh, both. Oh, oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. I just really, wasn't sure. Yeah. yeah really well-rounded. Yeah. Yeah. But he just. When you when you take Miles Davis and say he's not worth anything, or <laughs> yeah, people can get very opinionated I, about um, wow, the, that's like, kind of crazy to me. Musicians <laughs> and phrasing, you know, the way people phrase. That's just it. Is like, what did I listen to? I was listening to Freddie Hubbard, Miles Davis. I was listening to Maurice Andre. I was listening to you know Doc Severinsen. I was listening to a lot of different trumpet players, Maynard Ferguson. <laughs> you know, the blowhard of them all. Um, uh, and so many, so many trumpet players. And Miles Davis was, I was just always held him in a higher regard for the musicianship of his band more than necessarily his playing, at least at that point. But I hadn't, I didn't know him as a bebop player until much later. Mm-hmm when he was playing with Charlie Parker a little bit and, and whatnot. That, you know, so all those different experiences of listening, you know, feed my general sense of where I want to go with a phrase, you know, plus all the orchestra stuff I grew up. I grew up with almost no jazz until high school jazz band. Uh, it was all classical. Everything I listened to was classical, unless it was in school. Mm-hmm. And I just, I just, you know, boy, I fell in love with Stravinsky and Mozart and you name it. Uh, it was just so good. The B minor mass, I remember that. I, you know, at five years old, I remember, you know, Benjamin Britten, uh, guide, young person's guide to the orchestra. And I was five years old, sitting in the Academy of Music, listening to the Philadelphia Orchestra. Mm-hmm. That's like, whoa, and Eugene Normandy, you know, playing some of this stuff. Uh, and those strings, there's nothing better than those. I've never heard anything 
better than Ormandy strings anywhere mm. for its lushness and beauty. And, you know, the romantic stuff. Maybe well, I think you bring up a good point others, about but... listening to the best musicians you can find and the obvious utility of recordings in that, just so you don't have to you know, fly to London to listen to the London Symphony. <laughs> yeah, no, I was lucky. <laughs> and then my dad played Spike Jones stuff, which is yeah. just wacky, the wackiest music ever. Yeah. So, you know, so I laughed. And I got a lot of enjoyment out of music without, without even trying. Mm -hmm. Just a high value in my family, right? Sure. What about your uh, your family, Greg? Did you, you, you grow up around musicians, or you, you mentioned your dad is playing by ear a bit, so you have a little bit. Yeah, country music. Okay. <laughs> Canadian country music. Hey, Ray, Ray Charles has a great country album. Everybody should listen to Ray Charles before they put down. Yeah, country. it is country, country music. Yeah, and do I like country music? No. <laughs> Do I listen to country music? No. And my wife laughs at me. If I turn to a channel and I maybe don't realize it's actually country music, then when as soon as I realize it's changed, and she says, I was wondering how long it was going to take you before you changed the channel. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's hit and miss with country. Some people love it. Some people, you know, it's not their thing. Yeah. And and uh, we have a country fest that happens not far from my hometown every year. And uh, so it's a day-long thing. I mean, great artists. I mean, I couldn't really tell you who who they all were, but it was a, it was a long day. <laughs> I went with my family. My dad had an extra ticket. He asked if I wanted one, and I said, nope, nope, that's fine. You guys go ahead without me. In the end, my niece didn't need one, so they had an extra ticket, and I went. And... Um, <clears throat> Yeah, the I mean the things that I really enjoyed was the improv, the improvisation oh, that sure. they will do in a live country concert. So that was yeah. my relief. Um, whereas with my rest of the family, that was probably the part that they didn't like. Um, you know, and I thought, <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, oh, okay, okay, now now at least I'm getting something a little bit different. Yeah, so. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I do share, I'm not generally a fan of country. There's certain, I, I try to not jettison total genres out of <laughs> my life. So there's certain songs and certain artists I can tolerate more than others, but it's generally not a genre I'm particularly excited about. It's unfortunate because I just moved to Calgary. So, I mean, you got the Calgary Stampede, which I avoided yeah. like the plague. But yeah, there is some pretty crazy improv going on and 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 especially guitar players there's some insane country guitar players mm -hmm. just mm -hmm. the, the virtuosity is is definitely respectable but you know it's funny i went to uh, on my honeymoon i i went to london and we went to off broadway and i always have a really good experience with off like well done you know off broadway because the the musicians are amazing and they're playing it live just underneath everything so i saw that and then i was listening to some country music by accident of course two months later and I had this sense, like, country music is kind of like a play in a song. <laughs> and it, it, the whole genre, like, made more sense to me. And I was like, I think this is why people like it. It kind of is like a whole yep. little story in a play that, yep. you know, activates their mind. And, yeah, under, under that sense, I, I, I see why people could like it more. But, yeah, for whatever, for me, it's just, like, it pushes this button 
in my brain that irritates me. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's yeah. the twang. To me, it's the twang. That's I'm, I, that's yeah. what gets I'm me. like that with timbre. So when I hear a really terrible timbre, I can't deal. Yeah. It's really it's off-putting. And it's usually vocal timbre or some of the background electronic kind of stuff. But when the artistry's there, um, you know, I, it depends. It depends. I'm somebody who just does not do lyrics. I don't know what anybody's saying. I don't know the songs that I've played a hundred times. You know, the lyrics to them, other than my own. It is funny, my... Other than what I teach. If I don't teach yeah. it 30 times a week, then, yeah. Sure. Yeah, my, my brain typically will just completely filter lyrics out of songs. Like, I will just totally focus on the, the tones that are being played and the and of the melody. And I've noticed that with some of my students, too. Some of them are more, you know, more predisposed to focusing on the, the diction rather than the, the, the melodic content or the other way around. It's kind of interesting how that works. Yeah, I just say country isn't in my audiation. I just it's it's been on my <laughs> audiation ability. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unlikely if that's your main listening vocabulary. It's funny though with the the difference between country and folk because a lot of folk music I like, like the fiddle playing and the the bluegrass stuff that I can very much get behind. But yeah, there's some kind of uh, when it when it transmigrates into full-blown country there's just some intuitive aversion i have towards it. <laughs> uh, yeah i just choose not to spend my time you know i mean yeah. and i, I re totally respect anyone who really likes country music um sure. that's definitely for yeah. sure it's just um and i don't mean to be highbrow or anything because i think it does there is stuff that it does have to offer um lots of sure. things um it's just i would I prefer to spend my time listening to different other music. Yeah. No, we all have the right to have a disdain for stuff that just doesn't fit. Or, I don't know about disdain, but you know, just <laughs> ignore it, right? Or, I, I mean, cars that drive by that have the subwoofers turned up, you know, in eighty watts of power in their car, and it it just shakes you. What what's going? You know, first of all, physically, they're killing their ears. They're going to be <laughs> deaf yeah. people at middle age. Uh, and then, like, what is the value of that? Um, what you know? And then, you know, I associate that with the with the rhythms that are going on, and they're and they're haphazard at best. Yeah, I mean, uh, I always try and, that. and, That's and there's like a lot of that. Thing, so, right? But there's but yeah, but I've bought tickets to hip hop shows uh, and really enjoyed them. Uh, yeah. you know so a select couple of course you know my buddy like got really good ears and he he's a way more progressive listener than i am i'm old school i love my you know 20s to 70s stuff yeah. you know and and selected others but you know what do we bathe ourselves in um you know but I do have to interject you know the is it louis armstrong duke ellington or both of them you know what you know, there's only two kinds of music, the, you know, good and the other kind. Yeah. You know, so, you know, I, I try to adapt that philosophy, always looking and, and being open to something. But if you're talking strict what you hear on the radio mm. kind of stuff, you know, the pop music, of the you know, most of it is just, 
bland, nothing special until until there is something that's really ear catching we for this, whatever I, reason. I had this experience where this book club that I have, we've been we're doing an album of the week, kind of thrown in there too, which has been fun to do. And uh, I was listening to this Beach Boys album. Unfortunately, I listened to the wrong one. We were supposed to listen to Pet Sounds, and I listened to the wrong album because I couldn't remember which one the guy had recommended. And I, so we were listen- I listened to the L.A. or the Light album, Beach Boys. And this was yesterday morning. I was walking around listening to it. I listened to the whole thing in one listen. And I was like, you know what? This is good. It's well sung. It's well produced. Everything is right where it needs to be. But there's just something, you know, in terms of the the there's in terms of the harmonic content or whatever it was there's just something that's not like really pulling my attention in and you know obviously that's a personal preference thing but it yeah i think it was you know a bit surprising to some of the other people in the book club because they're not all musicians and it's kind of like i guess people bring different lenses to you know they're listening what, what they're trying to get out of music what, what they're what they're searching for what's interesting to them but this this album was good. I wouldn't say it was bad by any means. It was even extremely well produced. It was just not not something that kind of got me excited. That kind of made me go, "Whoa!" I wasn't expecting that sound, you know, or <laughs> or something that I, would, I when I really enjoy something, I get a hit out of re-listening to it. The the experience of like re-listening to it, or especially on the the guitar or the piano, the like replaying it, it like you know it fuels itself. But it's kind Where of missing. Where do these preference? Yeah, where do these preferences get created? Is it because you didn't listen to it? Or because you listened to it and made a, a decision about not having it be in your environment anymore as little as possible? Or, you know, have a, you know is, is there some prejudice or is there some, you know, some, some experience that instilled, like, why did I get turned into jazz only after I went to college? And I and I couldn't get enough. Mm-hmm. I, it, my first jazz experience was listening to Oscar Peterson, and I just—I do it. You know, I just sat there with the headphones on. My buddy sat me down and says, "You got to listen to this." And he passed me a reefer, <laughs> you know. And I sat there, <laughs> you know, seventeen years old. Here we go. Let's listen to this. And oh my gosh, my mine blew off and not because of the drugs <laughs> the, um but wow i you know it was transformed and then it, it then from then on most of my free time after dinner go back to the dorm and see who was home and who had you know the stereo running and swapping albums and you know sharing experiences and it was pretty crazy um you know, we, we had the best of the best music in three years at, un, in undergraduate school. You know, Joni Mitchell Mingus album. Uh, you know, uh, the, some of the best Oscar Peterson ever. The uh, Stanley Clark and Chick Corea, uh, Return to Forever. All the brand new stuff that was coming out. Wayne Shorter. Uh, we just, just all the greats. You know, I had eight or ten. Miles Davis albums and how disparate they were. Yeah, so I, you know, like, why do you get, I have a feeding frenzy, but I really never listened to Miles Davis in my life before then. See, I, I think it's aptitude. <clears throat> I think, I think that's another aspect of aptitude. Like, I grew up on country music, 
right? And I remember here turning into a radio station. And so I think it must have been Brandon. And we heard, my sister and I, just on a little radio, heard something. And I said, like, what, what, what is that? What kind of music is this? Because it was something so foreign to us. Well, it would have been Saturday afternoon at the opera, is what we heard, mm. you know. Or, or the symphony. I mean, that was the first time that I ever heard of opera. You know, um, we didn't have a high school band. Um, we didn't have orchestra. We had choir in my school. Um, so that was really the extent of the of the music that I heard other than on the radio. I remember being five years old and my mom pulled out a, a record and um, it was red. She put it on the little portable record player and it was it was Christmas music. It, it was an orchestra playing. It was the most beautiful. I'm going to get emotional, but it was the most beautiful thing I had ever heard in my life. Mm. Like, mm. where did that come from? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you, Greg, you probably experienced this with different students, and I don't know if you've been doing aptitude tests with them or not or whatever. I don't even know if it's this level it matters, but you start seeing it, you know, once you work with a student for a few years, you start asking them what they're listening to, and certain mm -hmm. people just have, like, this hunger to search out different sounds, like this... This little girl that I was teaching ukulele to for not even that long, the she was listening to like this really alternative, progressive rock music with the craziest time signatures and orchestration and stuff. It just blew my mind. I was like, this <laughs> this like seven year old kid, eight year old kid was making playlists with this stuff, mm -hmm. and she just had, and she was hungry for it too. It wasn't like she was just re listening to the same stuff. She was like she was driving out, you know, new sounds and 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 I noticed this with some students, you know. I'm trying to get people to make playlists because I, I think repeated listening is just invaluable for developing all kinds of pattern awareness, whether it's form or harmony or whatever, you know, tonal patterns, rhythm patterns. But some of these kids are really excited to make these playlists. And it's just week after week or month after month. They're just adding more and more to it and they're engaging with it. But for other people, there's not this kind of engagement with the listening process itself. And it's something that I think is it's funny, it always reminds me of, I've, I've talked to so many different jazz musicians about this, but the people that, there, there's one kind of musician where it's like they're learning to play songs and it's an activity that they do and it's fun to do. But then there's another kind of musician where it's like the music is the thing that's driving all of this. It's not them playing an instrument. It's like the participation with the listening is its own thing that they would probably do whether or not they actually played or not. And I know for me, when I started playing an instrument, it was at that stage. It was like, I was obsessed with listening. And then I said this to Eric once, I didn't think for years when I was obsessed with listening and having these profound experiences that I could make these sounds. It just didn't even enter my mind. It wasn't like I could get one of these things that makes these sounds and I could control the sounds, even though I was like doing a lot of babble and making little scats and, and drumming on myself all the time. And so the, the act of playing an instrument for me, it was totally connected with the listening. It was like, it was just a one-to-one -one correlation, but I, I can't imagine what it's like for people who are brought to a piano lesson or whatever kind of lesson without the listening vocabulary and are like starting to go from there. It's just such a different, you know, way of, uh, way of, way of doing it. I don't know. There's a lot in there, but you know, interesting yeah, stuff. Yeah. The, the emotional connection mm -hmm. is, is striking to me, Greg. I, there's, 
one time in the last 10 years where I jumped out of my seat in pure joy. And at the end of uh, uh, Time for Three, the, the string trio, two violins and a bass player, these guys just killed a performance uh, at a TED uh, talk um, that I was I was at, and I was never so invigorated in my life from music uh, in a live show, or as as invigorated as that. Like you know, like just jumped jumped right out of my seat at the end. And then um, this last summer, I got to see. 23-year-old Samara Joy uh, sing and she sounds like Betty Carter or Sarah Vaughan but she's 23 and she has the maturity and the voice of like the, she, the total understanding of the of the context of the time and the skill the vocal skills and I got to shake her hand I had to ask somebody to be my wife <laughs> to get in line because I had to get, I had to have a CD to get in line, <laughs> and I didn't have a CD, <laughs> and they were all sold out. And so I walked up the line and I talked to a couple people. I said, "Can I just sneak in with your family?" And this one lady said, "Sure." And when she got up, when it was our turn. She handed me her phone. She says, honey, will you take a picture? <laughs> right? It's the, it's the cutest little thing, right? And it's like, why didn't we take a picture together, honey? You know, like, something's weird. Something's off here. But I wanted to just go be in her presence and thank her from the bottom of my heart, like, however I could say it. And I don't think it even came out half what I wanted to say. Just, you know, appreciative. I welled up. And when I got back to my camp of you know you know 12 or 15 friends i just broke down and cried for a little bit i just sobbed for you know a minute it's like how beautiful was that just like i was present for that you know like every note of every song was just she's just an angel she because nobody can do that at 23 years old without like being imitative hmm. and she was owning it. So it's like, there's a spirit in her and it's like, well, music does that. How do you teach that? <laughs> you know, like you can't, you just, you just, those, those experiences are so important play. to have. Like they're, they're so important to have because when you get in the weeds of like, there's all this harmonic stuff I got to learn and there's rhythmic stuff and there's all these levels and everything has to be sequenced. And there's, you know, there's so much complexity like intellectually behind a lot of the stuff we're trying to do having those experiences, you know, semi-frequently or at least at least strong enough that they last a while, it kind of cuts through all the crap of like, there's all this crazy harmonic stuff I got to learn and all this, you know, all this stuff has to be practiced and worked on. Just when you have that experience, that that emotional connection, it uh, it makes the whole project kind of clear. Like you get like a 40,000 foot view on what you're even doing here. Uh, and it's funny, a lot, of, a lot of people, when they start learning an instrument, that's where they're starting from. And, you know, when we come in with all this crazy stuff that we're trying to teach them and they're, they're already kind of where they need to be. And they're just, they just want to be connected with the sounds and yeah. have a good time. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's pretty powerful to reconnect to that energy. Cause maybe that's why I want to teach so much, you know, the joy and the 
the just the presence of babies and one and two years old, you know, they can't do anything wrong. <laughs> you know, we're just there in their world. We're not trying to bring them into ours. And that, that just is what, uh, that's a good note. Maybe to stop. It's really a pleasure seeing you again, Great. man. Thanks. Greg, it's, it's too, too, too yeah, long. it has been. Yeah, and I've wanted to get to Gimmel because I thought, oh, those evening, those evening talks and conversations yes. are just, yeah, worth yes. worthwhile just in themselves. Ten yeah. times more important yeah. than the sessions themselves. Yeah. Boy, yeah, no, I I put my foot down this this summer, and uh, it was it was good. It was really good. So yeah, but they're, you know. That that's that's the whole point of it. It's that community mm-hmm. uh, among among us audiators. Hey, Greg. Before we wrap wrap up, can you share with everybody? Are you still doing these Canadian MLT coffee chats? I I came to some before. Yeah. My schedule has been horrendous for coming to them. But uh, yes. why don't you tell us a bit about this? Um, we we do it the third the third Friday of the month. So they're still. They're still on that. We have one coming up this coming Friday. Yeah, and it's uh, it's just a group of Canadian teachers who get together, and we have the various topics that we talk about. Um, it's a variety, variety of different levels. Some are just in the learning process, learning about MLT, and so just to help with the guidance of it and to answer questions. And a lot of times we have a topic um, that we're going to focus on. Um, not that it doesn't get derailed, <laughs> which often does in things like that. But yeah, and uh, so it's just a group of us Canadians getting together um, because then we can we can just openly talk about some of our frustrations. And uh, I mean, there, we've got the exam systems, different things like that, that uh, we're, we're dealing with and working around and, and maneuvering and, and making to work for us and how we teach. Yeah. And so, yeah, we're still doing that. Yeah. And we, the, the American wants to know, do you have to be Canadian? To attend? <laughs> so far, that was that was a requirement. We kind of did did close it to Canadians because we thought, you know, because then the Canadians understand where we're coming from. When you say something outlandish, everybody has the context. <laughs> yeah. Yes, of why yes, of why yes. that was said. And everybody goes, yeah, uh, and nods their head. <laughs> all right. I won't ask you for the link to find it then. <laughs> yeah. And I just wanted to Greg, to mention this because you know i went to these before and uh i think this is just it's so important when you're in like a super niche topic like this to have a community of people who actually understand what you're talking about and you'll find once you start talking to people about it the ideas just start staying in your mind you know to a much stronger degree and it just the whole thing just feels more enjoyable to, to go through and that yeah so i, I think that's uh, whether it's you know if you're eligible for greg's group if you got your canadian passport uh, but i'm sure there's other groups out there that you could join too but i think it's such okay, a good idea to get involved with, yeah. with adoption papers are in order well the definition yeah, the definition go. of canadian what is you're either born here you live here um you fly over here or <laughs> yeah sometimes sometimes the yeah. definition of canadian is pretty loose <laughs> <laughs> it's great talking to you though it's really yeah, really good so conversation. Yeah, thanks well, thanks so for the invite. Yeah, it was great. 
Lots, lots of fun. And I know that I'll be mulling things over throughout the rest of the week and going, oh, yeah, when they said this, yeah. And, and, yeah, yeah. No, that'll yeah. happen soon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do this long enough and you kind of just don't throw caution to the wind any, anymore. I, I barely even edit. <laughs> so, no, thanks again. Mm-hmm.